and welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, the podcast that celebrates the clean tech industry and the people that power it, brought to you by Brightsmith. I'm your host, Jenny Gladman, and across the podcast, I'll be interviewing leaders, innovators, and entrepreneurs from around the world to explore the opportunities, challenges, and rewards of working in clean tech. From fuel cells to fashion tech, we'll discuss diverse topics such as scaling startups, strains on the C-suite and seeking investment while offering some tokens of wisdom to enlighten, engage and inspire everyone to live their purpose. Well, what an exciting guest I have joining me on today's show. She is a true thought leader in the clean tech startup world and the driving force behind an accelerator generating sustainable change and reimagining energy. Siobhan sits on multiple boards. She's driven corporate strategy on a global scale. She's run accelerators on both sides of the pond and has written a game-changing book on scaling startups. And today she's going to share some of this wisdom with us in a discussion focused on the stages of scaling, the changes and challenges faced along the way, and some of the smart ways to tackle these challenges head on. So without further ado, honor to welcome Siobhan Clark, operating partner of BP Launchpad, to Conversations in Clean Tech. Hello. Hey, Jenny. I'm very excited. It's always amazing when someone else does an introduction to you and you're like, wow. Is that really me? Oh, that's kind of cool. It's really you. It's an impressive story. It's been a fun one for sure. I guess over to you if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself um, and the, uh, the the top line of your journey so far, what you're up to. Yeah, it's an interesting to hear your description of it. And I kind of always go with this idea of, well, you know, I've always been fascinated about the commercial end of tech. And it is tech for me. And, and, and technology can be many things from biotech to software to clean tech. And I know we're going to come on and have a conversation about what does clean tech really mean these days. But commercial end of tech. So I'm an engineering degree, electrical electronic engineering with French. I only ever did French because I could go spend like an entire year in the side of France and learn how to windsurf because that seemed like a good idea at the same time. Worked at small startups before they were called startups. Did some work in terms of helping governments to understand how do you take small pieces of technology and turn that into the multinationals of tomorrow. That led me into an MBA and then led me on a journey around the world with Cisco. So in sales and in strategy roles. So London, four years in Singapore and a couple of years in San Francisco. And while I was in San Francisco, got a real bite into the startup world. So, I mean, early seed, early series A companies, this this creation of taking an idea and its consumption and, and creating levels of scale to it. So I set up my own company, which was the cornerstone of some of the ideas that have gone into the book recently published. And that was working with very early stage companies. Ended up in venture capital as a result of that. So call out to episode one, investing in incredible seed companies in software within the UK. And then BP came knocking because we want to change the world. We want to move towards net zero. So they came along and said, hey, we'd be really interested in you setting up this, this thing called Launchpad. We want to invest in a digital portfolio of companies that address net zero somehow or another can you come along and help us to do 
something different and bring these lessons from venture capital, from around the world, from software, and bring that to the clean tech space. What a journey. <laughs> and I'd say BP are fairly lucky to have you doing it. There's not many people out there that have done that in so many countries and to, to such a level of success. So fantastic. And you touched on it there for our listeners who don't work in clean tech, who have heard of it, but perhaps don't know that much about it. Can you give us the, the 101? What is clean tech and, and where does BP Launchpad fit into that? And it's really interesting that you were were using the words clean tech here because you could put that as clean tech. It could be climate tech. Um, it could be a, a conversation around ESG. It could be AI to solve climate change. It can be any number of those things. But it really is about companies or the creation of companies and solutions in order to be able to solve the net zero challenge. So that has a number of different ways that you can actually go forward and tackle that. But where Launchpad's focus is, is around creating digital companies that have an ability to be able to connect into the clean tech space. And the reason why we do that is that we see the ability to layer on software and combine that with large industrial infrastructure assets in order to be able to make the world a better place. One of the couple of examples on how we do that is that we have an investment thesis. One of our investment theses is, is around industrial analytics for energy system optimization. So the use of software in order to be able to make some of the existing systems more energy efficient, uh, more effective in, in their deployment. And so today we have five portfolio companies. So Lightstride, Fotec, Onyx, Finite Carbon, got to put a call out to all of those incredible companies as part of the portfolio. We're looking to add another five to 10 so that we get to a holistic portfolio of 10 to 15 companies by the end of 22 that have huge amounts of potential in them, both to solve and address what's happening in the world and solve some of the problems, but also have an ability to kind of grow in their own right. So going back to the investment thesis, we're, one of those is around industrial analytics for energy system optimization. The other one is, this is how we translate that clean tech vision down. The other one is intelligent commodities. So that commodity could be carbon, it could be waste, it could be heat, as well as kind of some of the traditional ones. And this idea of how do you look at data and the use of technologies in order to be able to determine circularity, to put traceability into the supply chain, to allow that to understand where we're using resources in the most efficient and effective way of using those. And then there are a couple of other things that we're in the process of working through on, on digital energy, on the advanced mobility space, but those, those will come in their own time because again, a call out to anybody that's interested or any companies that are interested in working with us, we'd love to hear from them. Excellent. Well, we'll be sure to share your details with everywhere we are, we're publishing. And looking at what you were just saying there about those different portfolio companies that are at different stages of their journeys, we've had in-depth chats about this in the past. Let's touch on the stages of scaling. So I think it's something that people find really difficult to kind of quantify. So, you know, that journey from initial idea through to an MVP scaling and then super scale and how things change along the way, particularly the board. I know that's a you know, a real change from stage one to stage four um, through that scaling journey. So what, what do you think about that? 
I used to think in these ideas of scaling of exactly what you've described now, but scaling is a five-year journey from, you know, it's idea and then I get the idea and I get some customers on board and they start to pay for that and then it can build a team and, and then raise some funding around it and then, and then kind of create a real company because I've got a real company when I've got about 30 people and, and somewhere between two and 10 million of revenue, you know, that feels real. And I've got international divisions and I've got important people on my board and then created where I've then got 70 people and now I'm 10 million to 100 million and it's a completely different thing because oh, all the processes are breaking down my leadership team is, is still trying to learn what they're doing and I need to hire in some more people into the leadership team but I've got the existing team that are in there and how do I handle the culture and the dynamics and, and the build out of all of this and then at some point or another you get to like five years in the journey or, or maybe seven years in the journey and it's like oh my god now we're at an IPO. Now we're going to go supercharging on a billion dollars worth of revenue. That's the ideal story, of course. And then someone else was telling me, Ron, you're thinking way too short in time frames. Seven years? Seven years is nothing. How old is Amazon? How old effectively is the iPhone? It's really only been around for about 14 years and has had a fundamental impact on everything that we do. Think about the cloud services in Amazon. And that was really only 2012, 2014, six, seven years ago. And it is fundamentally changing the way that we can look at industries, the way that we can scale companies. But even aside from all of that, as you said, coming back to the scaling journey and what does that mean and the steps to what that looks like. For us, there is this, there's a zero to one. So you're starting from an idea and most of my focus being open about bias has been in the B2B world. It's been kind of enterprise software and now on this connection between software, hardware and into the clean tech industry. There is a zero to one, which is effectively about I've got a PowerPoint. How do I get to my first 10 enterprise customers? I mean, you start with one, you start with a bunch of hypothesis building, et cetera. So, you know, we, we can go down that route and have a look at it if we want to. So zero to one or effectively zero to 10 enterprise customers and maybe a million to a million of revenue. And then there is the two to the 10 stage, as I mentioned before. And then I think there's a 10 to 100 stage after that. At the very early stage of the zero to one, it should just be an advisory board or something that is helping the company to shape up. What does that mean? Somebody with business development skills, and that can access and make introductions to customers and into networks. But the time you start to hire in people, the time that you're maybe got to 10 enterprise customers, you're dealing with somewhere between maybe 10 and 20 people in your company, then you need to start having a sensible board, a sensible board, but a sensible board with some experience on there of someone who's been through parts of that scaling journey. And those early stages there, it's really about a very active board member or a very active board that acts to a certain extent for the CEO or the entrepreneur as an extension of their leadership team, somebody who's providing really great input. As soon as you start switching into levels of maturity, your board should start to shift, either the individuals on it or the way that they are acting and interacting with the company. So that interaction becomes less about an advice, an active hands-on, 
and switches to becoming more of an equal challenge and support to the company, challenging them in the direction that they're going, asking the right questions, but also supporting them through the hard thinking times, through the challenges of things breaking down as you scale, because that's just normal. And so there, there is a deliberation. It often happens in the venture industry. If you go from seed to series A, series B, series C, you often have different investors coming on board who have those skill sets. So you have a natural change to your board anyway. But if you don't have that investor coming in at a particular time, I think for companies that are building up in clean tech, they should be very deliberately designing their board for the stage of the scaling journey in which they're at. And I think that's that's one of the key things that I think people forget to do. They build a board and think that board is going to be with them for a long time. And actually, you touched on it there, but building the board for change, making sure that you have those review points and that you're actually considering who's right for the board now and who's right for the board next year. And they might be really quite different. Hopefully not the whole board, but but different people that you need in there and certainly people to ask those different questions. And I think that's where having a diverse board is, is also super important. You know, not having four people with the same same background, the same experience, because you don't get that diversity of thought that you need. Absolutely. And, and you and I have been having this conversation a few times. It's not just about the diversity of skills and experience that are coming in, but also the diversity of personalities. So having the introvert and the extrovert at its very basic level on the board, but also having people on that board that you know their behaviors are there to watch out for each other. How do I interact here with the rest of the individuals to equally support and challenge the company? How do I bring the skills to, to bear in that particular moment? There's a lot of interesting thought about as, as you diversify that board, being absolutely deliberate about the behaviors in the board meeting and outside of the board meeting that are valuable and valuable to the growth for that company at that particular stage. One of the things that we do within Launchpad and we've just done within the last year is that we do very formal board valuation surveys. So we do actually look at governance, we look at behaviors, and we also look at kind of the interaction with the company as well and say, is the board acting? Not that is it acting in the best interest of the company? Of course it is. That's under law by what you need to do. But are we getting the most effective? Sounds, it sounds challenging, but I start going the most effective use out of the people. But are we getting the most effective use out of their experience and their skills? And are they as board members feeling that they're having the most useful impact as well? Because everything starts there at the board level will help to craft the culture into the company as well. So having that small group of pretty amazing, diverse insights, experiences and behaviours crafting into and building to a singular vision, that's powerful stuff. Definitely. And I think that's one of the, the key lessons for founders to learn along the journey. And, and lots of them learn the hard way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like in life. If you're not learning, then there's no point in trying. <laughs> and actually, that, that probably brings us perfectly onto your book. One of the discussions we were having when we were first talking about the book was that the fundamental lessons that founders need to learn along the way. It's safe to say, as we just touched on, a lot of, a lot of these lessons are learned 
by things going wrong. But actually, in a startup, I think if you're if you're not making mistakes, you're not doing it right. Let's dive into the book and hear some examples of the learnings and and what I guess what you've learned along the way as well. I love the word learnings. I used to always use this word of, well, if you're not failing at least five times a day, you're not growing in the right direction that you're doing. And then people kind of go, but you can't keep using the word failure, Siobhan. I'm like, failure is a great word. Because <laughs> the more times I fail, the more successful I'm going to be. It's awesome. Embrace it, kind of on the large. But, uh, you know, we'll get digressed on, the, on a completely different topic for something else. I'll hold up the book for anybody. It's also got my original notes in it. So it can be found on Amazon. It's called the uh, Finder's Handbook, How to Get to Your First 10 Enterprise Customers. It was co-authored with a CEO friend of mine who I'd worked with while I was at Episode 1 Ventures. It effectively breaks down into a couple of different parts. So in getting to your first 10 enterprise customers, we see this very much as a very a very straightforward process-driven approach. It's effectively creating a business development flywheel. So the book is broken down over three parts. The first one introduces the flywheel, the different kind of components to it, how you go about understanding a market, testing your solutions for that market, iterating on those solutions, and then adapting each time that you're coming out to the customer. And one of the things that we kind of love about that part of the book is that in the zero to one journey, we're talking about starting with a PowerPoint. Sometimes you can go and test with a customer with an MVP that is a minimum viable PowerPoint. Go with your MVP, see what the engagement is. Will somebody buy that from you? Get a contract on that, build the goods afterwards. So there is an MVP. I'm trying to bring a different definition to MVP and the engagement with customers in its first half. The second part of the book is really about how do you make that flywheel go faster? If we're understanding what the market is, what the solution is, how we're adapting to that and iterating each time we meet the customer, how do I make that go faster? How do I negotiate my first contract? How do I make new friends? So effectively, am I treating these individuals back to our comments around the board and we are people at the end of the day? This is not just about a, a faceless customer. This is about an individual who has family, who has a house, a mortgage, who is operating in, in our virtual world in these days and spending the corporate's money on something of value. So how do you engage and make new friends with your customers that help you to understand and make that flywheel go faster? How do you work internally with your own team that you're all aligned with delivering for the customer? What metrics mean that you're doing the flywheel correctly? What metrics mean that you're actually, you're not spinning in a direction that means you're going to run out of money, but actually spinning in a direction that means you'll get to 10 enterprise customers and then you'll get to 100. And then the third act, so remember the first act is all about the flywheel. The second is how do you make that go faster and a couple of different techniques to do that. So this is part of the constant learnings throughout, throughout the journey. And then the third one is all about what we call holding out for a hero. It's a great song, but it is also so much more about, it's called the Finder Handbook, but the principles align themselves to anybody who is going into a new market, who has a new responsibility for a particular product that is trying to do something different because 
they are their own hero. They have to write their own story. They have to take that ownership for all of those learnings and ensure that they're feeding them back into the system to make their own flywheels go faster. So those are kind of the components to the book written by myself and, uh, as I said, Andreas over the last year in lockdown, because, you know, what else is there to do but write a book? <laughs> and uh, will there be a second one? I'm hoping there will be a second one. There's a couple of ideas on that one. I think there's the back to our conversation about scaling and how the board journey shapes to that. I don't think there is enough written or understood yet about the board's potential to add huge value to the scaling journey. And we're certainly nowhere close to optimizing people at that level, giving guidance to the companies and the CEOs and, and switching that out on a dynamic level. So who knows, watch this space. Book two, maybe you'll need a sabbatical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll end up, you know, just going windsurfing in the south of France and it'll be written in French or something like that. There's an audience there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and on the uh, the flip of that, the roller coaster itself. So you've been there several times, but can you share some of the experiences you've had and the challenges you've had in that startup space? Really the the highs and the lows. Yeah. Jenny, there's a, it's maybe letting your listeners in. You you kind of asked me to think about this question, and I, I'd come up with some thinking around it, but the rest of this might be kind of, oh, what's my what's my afternoon as we're recording this? Ideas about what makes sense, and there are two things that I was thinking about in terms of you know what's the hard lessons kind of learned along the way, and the one thing that reminded me was resiliency and building the resiliency for bounce back because as I thought about all the hard lessons along the way they didn't seem really like hard lessons although they probably felt like that at the time but there were two key things that were always driving me which was curiosity and hunger and it was this hunger to just to prove things and to prove things and you've got that hunger to just drive after it and the curiosity to figure out well that didn't work that didn't work that didn't work okay I wonder if I try this will that work and so that means the ability to kind of build resiliency and just get up and go time and time again so there's been hard lessons one along the way from early days in in, in Cisco where, you know, it was 18 months to get to, you know, a six-figure million, no more than that, over 200 million of a contract. It took a long time to get that from, a bit like it felt like the zero to one from the minimum viable PowerPoint of here's the vision of what we want to create for you as corporate to 18 months later actually getting the contract and a lot of hoops along that way and just keeping faith in the original vision Sometimes, sometimes there was the glass of wine or perhaps it was, you know, and you just need to go for a run to kind of get this frustration out of the system. And as I was running, this comes into this idea of the curiosity. I wonder if what other methods do I have in order to be able to address this? So, you know, hard lessons learned along the way. There is probably a load of those, but I, I seem to have blanked them out from my mind and replaced those with just these words called curiosity, being a very curious competitor and this hunger to just, I, I just need to go prove this. I need to go prove this in the same way that sometimes I just 
go off and you know I need to run faster than I've ever done before just because it feels good sometimes to do that makes sense maybe the lesson learned was run and then whine and not whine and then run yeah exactly or the other lesson learned is that if you're trying to learn the lessons learned write them down and then put them into a book and then they're forever sealed in their nature to be able to come through on a serious note one of the things that I have hard lesson learned and there, there are many times that this has come up is to actually treat boards, customers, whoever you're working with as people, as putting the human at the center of the conversation, of walking away from this need to be right, but more this need to understand. Because that in itself, I think, unlocks different strategies. It unlocks different behaviors at a board level. And I think brings just, just a different level of collaboration that hopefully we will see results in terms of a growing portfolio for us at Launchpad and some of the areas that we connect in as well. Brilliant. And for those companies out there that might be interested in finding out more about Launchpad, why is why is it such a great platform for scaling a clean tech? How do you allow these startups to flourish and, and what support do you give them? I think there are three areas that we believe makes Launchpad slightly different from, from other things that are out there. The first one is we, we take what's known as the platform model in venture capital and we I mean we just add a lot of a lot of fuel to that. So we have a number of practices that are set up, growth practice, technology, people, operations, and finance practice. And those are stemmed with incredible talent. So people who have been through this scaling journey before. People who have what we've written down in the book in their head about people at different stages, about how technology scales at different stages. And so when a company comes in as part of Launchpad, this is like an extended part of their team that they can now pull in. So they know what it feels like to go through these lumpy parts of the journey, but they also have the frameworks to help them to accelerate and go a little faster. And, And that's pretty incredible standing on the shoulders of giants, learning from others that have gone before. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is that part of this ecosystem of companies that are addressing kind of net zero. So this collection of passionate individuals that that have this sheer ambition to change the world in their own way. And that's not just about the people within Launchpad, but also within the portfolio companies themselves. And then the third one, which, you know, because we are part of BP, there's only so much that I can say about that. But the third one is about this, this connection that I talked about earlier in terms of software connected to large industrial scale assets. So by being part of and connected to BP, that allows us access to an incredible kind of components that means that anybody that's working in clean tech, we're coming into someone who has an ability to really shape and change the world in which we live. Which is amazing. And I think that links back to something you touched on at the start when we discussed what is clean tech and the many guises it can go under, you know, climate tech, as you, you phrased it. And that's something that shapes some of our discussions of, of what it's like to, to do a job, to have a purpose 
that really has an impact and you know that what you're doing is is really changing the planet and hopefully changing the planet for for the better on a larger scale that the more you can grow out launch pads so yeah how does that feel what does that mean to you this will go back to this is going to expose all my you know sporting analogies of all kind what that means to me is that there's snow on the hills to go skiing on when there's not an off season so you know the, the picture way behind is a map of all the ski resorts in the world so you know it's it's a bit of a need to prove it tick 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 right so to me it means that we're supporting resources we're supporting protecting those resources on a global level. And that means many different things to, to people on an individual scale. For me, it goes back to wildlife and actually having those having those in place, not just the foxes in the London gardens, but actually the protection of those on a global level and, and the resources and the landscapes that they're in and keeping a fragile ecosystem together. You know, does the changes that we make by simply turning off all the electricity at night because I've now got a meter on the wall, that means that that's reduced down or choosing the fact that my supplier has uh, renewables as part of that portfolio and I'm an actor in that system makes a difference. And to be part of a company or growing companies that are supporting energy system optimization that are driving um, traceability into the supply chain and making data available for sensible decisions, is it sensible decisions, for, for deliberate decisions about the use of the scarce resources that we have. That's just, it's just pretty powerful stuff. It's satisfying. That and the ski resorts, so, you know. And the diving. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you go up and I'll go down. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> and then we'll meet in the middle. Exactly. <laughs> Summer in one, winter in another. <laughs> Everyone has their additional purpose. But yeah, no, it is nice. Yeah. I think when you can link it back to something that you so clearly see, smell, feel, and and even just that kind of walking around the roads and it feeling cleaner and and suddenly it doesn't anymore. So yeah, I think there's a lot of people in that that are really seeing the need for change. And it's not just being driven by tech, it's being driven by society as a whole. So I'm feeling hopeful. And I think I have one last question for you, which is your your real highlight. If you could pick one moment of your career, you've really sat there and thought, wow, what would it be? There's usually so many of these things. I, I do remember once, there was some work when, when I was working with Cisco, we were doing some work in, in Thailand. And I do remember sitting in a boardroom in a particular kind of company in Bangkok. And I was one of the English speakers that were around the table, but most of the conversation was in Thai. And talking about this idea of this, this vision to then implementing technology to make a change. And that was one of those moments where I remember reflecting in that boardroom, oh my God. And one portion of my brain was thinking, somebody let me in this room. <laughs> and then the other portion of my brain was going, this is incredible. This, this is what the benefit of globalization actually means. This bringing together of this experience between 
kind of, it was Thailand between the US and the UK, and then my own personal experiences that I was bringing into that room with others. And to do that in a place where, you know, the first language wasn't English for, you know, wasn't for them. That was a moment for me in my career where it was like, go back to the curiosity and the hunger where I was like, this is what it means to do business globally. Being here in this room, feeling slightly uncomfortable, but backing the vision of what we brought in because we believed that that was going to make a change. And, and that has resonated time and time again when I think of the privilege that I have. Even this morning on a call, we were talking about some international work that we were doing with one of our companies. The privilege of knowing that I have an ability to make a small change by connecting people across borders to deliver on something. That's just, that's just, it's just cool. Our world is small at the end of the day. It is. And actually, I, I said I had one last question, but now you've just inspired another, is, is how do you see things changing in clean tech? And I think on a global scale, where do you see the biggest changes? What's it going to look like in a few, a few years' time? I think it's going to be huge. I'm going to come back to what you were talking about. This, this, each of us have our small part to play within it. So there, there is a whole consumer, what I call the consumerization of the electron economy. So the, this whole, whole scale movement of individuals who are sat at home having their cup of tea or their glass of wine this afternoon, you know, is, is connected into being able to, I have an individual role and a small actor to play in this. And so this people component means that talent from the software world, from entrepreneurs that are operating in there, that are experiencing this consumerization are going to move into that space. So as I go back to, I was talking to someone a few weeks ago and they said, are we, are we in another bubble? And I said, well, it hasn't even begun for us, this clean tech bubble. We, we haven't even seen the beginning of what is about to happen for us. So speaking of talent, and again, another conversation we've had several times, but one of the things that is key to us at Brightsmith is finding talent that is brilliant, but also feels very passionately about what they do, about creating a cleaner planet and wanting to move out of different sectors and into clean tech. So what would be your advice to those people? Well, the first one should be contact Jenny because she knows some great companies to be able to that would be one. And I think the second one is also, it's been a deep belief of mine. And it's like the reason why I went to study engineering with French is because I just wanted to learn how to windsurf and speak French because I thought that would be cool. You've got to follow your passion for whatever that is for that particular time and, and be open to that passion changing and shifting as the world changes and shifts. So my advice to anybody that's kind of coming into clean tech, number one, if you're starting a company in that particular space or interested in doing that, give us a shout. If you have a company, come to Launchpad. We'd also, you know, if it doesn't make sense for us as Launchpad, we'll connect you into the ecosystem. Happy to do that because that's collaborative and, you know, benefits us all in the end. But if you are individual talent in that as well, I think, is it's just follow your passion. Go find the companies that you think I align to that vision. I align to the way that they see the world and what they're trying to do. And just call them up. Get in there. 
some of the there's going to be a growth in this particular space go after it yeah there's a lot of opportunities and thanks for the plug they can call me and i'll still uh, end up sending them through to launchpad <laughs> that would be awesome <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. Follow your passion. And I think that's something that I absolutely love about this sector. Everyone in it loves it. Everyone turns up to work every day and it doesn't feel like a chore. It feels like you really are are making a difference. And I think that's very, very evident when I talk to you. So, well, I think that brings us to the end of the discussion. So thank you for sharing your wisdom. I think you had some brilliant points. I can't stress enough for our listeners to go out and grab the book get reading, send on your notes. <laughs> We're actually inviting some guest blogs on our website because there is sections that we may have missed. So yes, that would be awesome. Thank you, Jenny. Here we go. You may feature in book two. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for being a part of Conversations in Clean Tech. I'm very excited to see what comes next. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you for listening to Conversations in Clean Tech brought to you by Brightsmith. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the show. For more information on how Brightsmith can help you build a sustainable future through identifying, attracting, and retaining diverse talent, head over to brightsmith.com and join us next time for more conversations in clean tech.